welcome to What Goes Around podcast. And we are back, but only just because uh, dear Anne is off being a megastar in Manchester, recording for Six Music, and I am off in the hellish land of the estate agent, trying to move into my new house in Bristol. Both of us are far away from our normal comfy pads of loveliness, so we have decided to put together a special show, haven't we, Anne? Yes, and uh, you have kindly, somehow, in between all of your various house-moving nightmares, managed to chop up previous episodes and put together a wonderful compilation of our best bits, basically. And uh, we are kind of midway through series two, so there are quite a lot of best bits, some tasty bits in there. This is all the best bits from series one, so if you're a recent listener and you've only just joined in the fun... Well, listen, go back and, and go through these old archives. You'll hear what we, what we did in this show, and I'm sure you'll find plenty to laugh at and snigger at, because I had a really good time going back, going through it all. It's been fabulous. And it, it, I, I'm glad we're not doing a proper full-on recording this week, because I have been staying in some of the worst B&Bs. <laughs> I mean, they're actually, they're actually really nice B&Bs. Like, they look lovely and... Last week we were in this beautiful kind of studio loft apartment in Bristol, which is just brilliant, really nice, until about nine o'clock when the drum and bass party started next door. And that went on until seven in the morning. So that was good. Other people's then, music. What did I oh, tell you? Yeah, the worst honestly, thing in the world. Honestly, this was loud. It was so loud. It was unbelievable. And uh, this week, I am. Um, it, I mean, it's quite good we're going back to the first series, actually, because just like those good old days at the start of the pandemic, I am once again recording under a duvet and sweating because, <laughs> because the neighbours uh, that we have in this Airbnb are having a grime party. Um, this grime party has now lasted, well, they had an hour off about 11 o'clock last night, but there's about seven of them next door, I think, and they are having such a good time. Would you not go and knock on the door? I seven relish the opportunity to go and hammer <laughs> on someone's door and give them what for. I know there's a couple of reasons. First of all, I live in Hackney and that teaches you to be wary. Um, so, <laughs> Not <laughs> so me. There's, so there's that, yeah. Well, you know, you've got, you got a brass neck. Um, <laughs> and secondly, you know, this is this is my karma. I'm paying for sins of the past and I understand Oh, yeah, that. that is such nonsense. There's no such thing as karma. You've got to live your life and, you know, try and turn the world, tilt it so that everything goes your way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love your can-do attitude. It's no wonder you're doing so well in life. It's good. Yeah, well, listen, anyway, I'm, 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 I'm very hot under this duvet and I'm keeping the noise up. So let's, let's move briskly on because this is What Goes Around Greatest Hits Volume 1. First off, we have a little snippet of our very first episode in which the brilliant and hilarious Wrong Tom told us uh, several different stories of being caught by the fuzz. Pulled up in Tooting. Everyone's on alert because they found this uh, this terrorist. And the guy says, I need to search your car. So I open up the boot and I got my records in the back. And I had a box of 12 inches, box of 7 inches. And the guy says, like, what's in here? And I say, it's records. And then he looks at the other one. He goes, what's that one then? I mean, it's also records. <laughs> and he goes, they're too small. <laughs> I said, no, they're seven inches. He said, what are you talking about? <laughs> I said, honestly, they're records. I'm on my way to a gig in Shoreditch. I'm going to play these records to people on a record player through some speakers. Some people might dance. Hopefully, and he just he just wasn't having it. He didn't like the the cut of my jib. Was it too small? So John, that was the CD age, you see. Right? Yeah, people had lost the faith at that point. Yeah, I DJ with my mate Ben, and he exclusively plays sevens, and I pretty much exclusively play twelves. And whenever either of us plays, you know, if I play a seven inch or he plays a twelve, he's like, oh, a big one, oh, a little one, oh, we get all excited about it for a few minutes. What's he more excited about? Uh, he's more excited about my, my, when he's got a big one and I've got a little one. <laughs> you walked into that one. <laughs> I feel like you've been waiting to say that. <laughs> Just, you've been finding a way of shoehorning that one in for a while. If, I, if I'd been you waiting, I'd have said I had the big one and he had the little one. <laughs> so he's looking at my, my big box and my little box 
and he doesn't believe me that these are records in there. And uh, and I was just like, I'll, I'll open it up if you want. He was like, wait, wait. Oh no! And I was just like, gee, like, like I said, the police are yeah, on high yeah, alert, yeah, yeah. and he's he's freaking out about this. Well, you know, you're known for dropping bombs. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we should be laughing. No. no sorry. Not just... No, 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 no. For myriad reasons, we shouldn't be laughing So he calls over another copper who's on the side of the street with a gun because Ooh. they're patrolling and they have guns. Yeah. And he stands next to me with his gun. Doesn't point it at me, but he stands very close to me with a gun. <laughs> Close enough. Well, the other the other policeman leans in with his hand trembling, leans in to open this little box of seven inches. Come, like, like he's got a bomb in the back of his car. And I'm there just thinking, like, if this guy's wrong, I could get shot. <laughs> and then finally, you know, his trembling hand reaches the clip and opens it up, and sure enough, there's a bunch of seven inches inside, and he's looking at them, and he's pulling them out. You know, and he's looking at a bunch of like jazz and soul seven inches, and I'm just thinking I'm being held at gunpoint <laughs> for, 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 the funk. Funk. <laughs> for the funk. <laughs> and then they uh, they said, "Okay, sir, you have records in the back of your car. You can go." God. And I got back in my car, put Gary Bartz on, yeah. made my merry way, way back across town. And you're like, "That's another song tainted by the police." <laughs> And their hostile behaviour towards me. I I love that song. They can the police couldn't take that one. <laughs> um, that's amazing. You just know the policeman who was like, "They're too small." <laughs> like, oh man, I got this guy pegged. I'm going to get a medal for this. <laughs> Busted. Imagine calling a guy with a gun over. I know, for just for the for your sevens. Twelves are fine. Right. <laughs> you should, it would have been worse if you'd said they're the forty fives. This next clip features Labby Sifri, who was, I must say, an oracle of amazing information and experience. We really enjoyed speaking to him. And one of our favourite bits uh, came around when um, Anne, slightly off-handedly, just sort of said, yeah, yeah, we know what you mean when you say music changes your life. And then Labby goes off. Oh, he put me in my place. <laughs> <laughs> it's good, though. It's very good. I think this is more than just being into music. Well, you know what I mean. I'm diminishing it because we, we all understand what you mean. <laughs> no, you no, so no, no, no. I, I, don't, I, I, I don't know whether people do understand what I mean. Mm. I mean, um, I mean, it's always of interest to me when I hear people talking about the 60s or mm. the 70s or the 80s, uh, and they're supposed to be talking about the music. Mostly they're interested in the fashion. Mm. You know, the world is full of musicians who feel like this, or the world is full of artists who feel like this about painting or about sculpture. If you want to know what this was like, the closest thing I can do to describe it to you is... The first time, if you're one of those people, as I am three times happily uh, fallen in love at first sight, mm. that kick you get in the stomach, that, that devastating feeling, that's what I'm talking about. The first time I heard Jimmy Reed's Let's Get Together, the first time I heard Prince in 1999, the first time mm. I heard Ellington, the first time I heard Basie, the first time every Beatles album, mm. every Beatles album totally changed my life. Mm. Prince with 1999 totally, Laura Nairo's album uh, New York Tenderberry. Oh, stunning. Totally changed my life. Mm. Everything Miles did, everything Bird did, everything Monk, who's still my favorite pianist, everything mm. Monk did, uh, um, uh, when I heard Hey Joe, Hendrix Hey Joe, nobody had ever, I'd never heard, nobody had ever played guitar like that track. And I, I ignore everything you did after that particular track, how he played. The first time I heard James Brown, um, I'm, I'm working in the jazz club Annie's Room in London, and, and we're after hours and we're in the bar, and somebody puts James Brown on, and I'm listening. 
He's turned the rhythm around. He's turned, he's turned, he's turned the rhythm around. He's turned time around because everything's on the one. Mm. He's turned, he's turned everything around. I couldn't work it out. I got to say, um, I was born in 1945, and I have absolutely no doubt whatsoever. By the way, I'm apart, from, you know, I'm a, I'm an atheist, homosexual, black artist. Mm. Um, so I have absolutely no doubt whatsoever that huge, huge swathes, huge numbers of the people I really admire were homophobic racists. Because from 19... Uh, you know, this is like the business of, oh, Churchill was a racist. Yeah, but just about every white person was mm -hmm. at that time. Oh, someone was homophobic. Yeah, but just about everybody was. You know, um, so if I, w if I was to discover... Um, who was racist or homophobic of the people that I really admire, I'd probably have to cross off my list of people I admire so that there'd probably be only an eighth left, possibly, <laughs> possibly less. Yeah. So this will probably go down <laughs> as the first proper, first proper standoff argument that me and Eamon had. There have been a few, but this was the first one. And uh, it was quite divisive in terms of listener involvement as well. I brought up the subject of Britpop and uh, all hell broke loose. It wasn't boring to me. Like, to me, it's like, no, that, no. Was a, that was a movement to me. That was like the first, this music was revelatory. Like, I had no frame of reference for it. So it was completely new to me. And the way they performed on stage and their clothes and their hair and everything else. Like, to me, it was... To me, th this was like a, 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 a pop culture revolution. That's what I guess mm. I mean. I feel like it doesn't get... People are extremely dismissive of it and it doesn't get the, the credit. I'm not saying that I'm looking back on it wistfully and thinking, man, that was so great. But I feel like it doesn't, it doesn't get that much credit as a movement. People are very I, dismissive I, I, of I, it. Personally, I think it gets too much credit <laughs> but, really hey, but you're talking about people who still kind of look back in, with nostalgia and like listen to Oasis like boneheads who just want to fucking you know sing along with Wonderwall at a festival or whatever like that's not what I mean I, I mean more like a, a I sort think, of cultural I think turning saying, point like, the idea was sold to you as a youth the idea was sold to you as this there was this rock and roll thing happening and it was you know, fertile ground for you because uh, once you'd heard these kind of retro styles of music, it did open up into a world and the way they were dressed and stuff opened you up into a world where there were other great things to explore. And that's all fine. That's great. But um, when I try and think about what I would, you know, term a, a real movement of music, a real um, exciting moment, something that really changes things uh, profoundly in music, I don't think Britpop did change things very profoundly. I think what it did is it kind of brought back an old mentality mm. and it kind of brought back um, a sort of nostalgia for how rock and roll used to be. And I think that's fine and I can totally understand it because you know, there was so much electronic stuff going on at that time um, and everything was so new that a lot of people, a lot of older people felt totally alienated by it and a lot of younger people were still, you know, they're still brought up on their mum and dad's record collection or whatever. It was just, to me... I can understand why people would enjoy it, but as someone who was a little bit older at the time, the the selling of the the branding of Britpop seemed really contrived, mm. and I thought I thought the quality was all over the place, and I thought really the most important thing for me was it ignored all of the innovation and the amazing things that were happening elsewhere in music that I just found a million times more interesting. I mean, great, I love your catchy guitar jingle jangle sounds, and I, I love your rhyming shining with lining and <laughs> king with thing and you know all that and i like your mockney cockney girls and boys and all that business that's all fine right but none of that was new to me mm, none mm. of it was new jungle was brand new never existed before you know um mm. a few years before that um techno and house were coming out in a way that just i just had never heard those sounds rave was completely off the planet and if you go back further things like bebop was so hard and so different to what had come before. Rock and roll was so different to what was allowed to be played before. And even the jazz when it came over here, it was so different. None of those things were really reviving an older scene. Mm -hmm. Or if they were, they were taking it and absolutely deconstructing it and putting it back together again. Whereas I feel as 
talented as all these musicians were, and I don't pretend that any of them are without merit. I just think um, most of of that era of music in ter- that is called Britpop, a lot of it is bereft of new ideas. They have traditional ideas. It's almost like folk music to my ears. Mm. Because at the time, I would have rather listened to Massive Attack or or Goldie or, you know, any number of interesting smaller genres. I think the reason it became such a thing is because it was a media creation and the media wanted a a Beatles and Stones scenario because they could get their teeth into that and they understood it. And they were flailing at the time because all of the cultures that were popping off all over the place didn't... We didn't need them. We didn't need the media. The jungle rays happened without it. The techno rays happened without it. It was like maybe two pages in in the back of Melody Maker or something. But most of the rest of it was pretty ignored. Do you mm. know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And, and so, so we got resentful about about Britpop. Uh, yeah. that's how I felt. Yeah, it's that's interesting to hear you say that because, like, I was just so. I wish I could go back to being that naive. The next clip features Marcus Brigstock and it was on episode six, I believe, of series one. And I have to say, um, when you invite a comedian on, you expect a surface level, slightly jokey kind of do the interview like, like, like how as light entertainment. But Marcus came on and absolutely bared his heart out to us. And it was a fascinating story about how he started off as a a fat, lonely, gothic caterpillar. And then through a little bit of therapy and some working stuff out, he blossomed into a beautiful raving butterfly. And this is just a little sample of his brilliant, brilliant story. I mean, I know it was around that time, you know, that I was only sort of a year or so into being sober. And so the world around me was, was very different. I was still having to make amends for some of the mess that I'd made in the life that I'd led before and I was still getting used to a very changed existence you know one of complete sobriety no alcohol no drugs and being incredibly boundaried around Mm. food and that was a very weird experience for for an 18 year old and also you know I was celibate for a while you know for for more than a year um, which when you've been 24 stone and you go down to 11 stone is no small thing so I, I think in my mind, I've sort of conflated it that it, it, all of it happened in a very small amount of time. But I think it probably came out a year or two after I'd yeah, um, so just had a little sobered look. up. It's, it yeah. was ni- 1992 it came out. 92, which, yeah. So there you go. So which, I got sober I got sober December the 5th, 1990. So I'd have been like a year, a year and a half sober when it came out, which is really when <laughs> you start connecting up better ideas you know that when you when you sober up you don't you don't sort of figure it out for a while you then you live in a sort of vacuum for a bit and then you work out what it was that was compelling you to behave in that way and then you start working out how you're going to live a new and and a different life so yeah 92 would be absolutely perfect no wonder it it got me in the in the soft spot you know (laughs) Um, bit of a departure then for your third and final phonograph. <laughs> yeah. Right? Tell me about uh, this. Tell us about this last one. Yes. Yeah, so this is Cubic by 808 State. Uh, and this would be a tune that I, I doubt I could listen to all of it now. <laughs> and I don't mean it's, all it's of the album. It's a banger, Marcus. It's a banger. <laughs> I mean all of, all of the song. I can tell you that the, the beginning of it oh, still, really? like, it just makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand on end. And cubic was cubic was was the way in. And then, as you mentioned in the intro, I I I was dancing at Ministry of Sound, which I did every Saturday anyway. And I got talent spotted, and then became a, a podium dancer. Well, how, so you must have been extraordinarily good to have been... I, well, I was just thinking, like, I, I've thrown my heart and soul into Dazzy. No one's ever asked to watch. <laughs> we spoke to the brilliant Sophie Scott CBE all about the impact that music has 
on the brain and why it's actually quite important for happiness and brain function and also uh, unlocks some of the mystery about why I love musicals so much. (laughs) Professor of Cognitive Neuroscience and expert on the science of laughter, language and communication, we are delighted to welcome Sophie Scott to What Goes Around. Sophie is an esteemed academic who harbours a deep love of music. Best known for her fascinating work on how laughter is processed by the brain, Sophie has gone from stand-up comedy to presenting the Royal Institute Christmas Lectures and shows no sign of stopping her endless quest for understanding the human condition. We may not understand what we're saying and doing on this podcast, but I'm guessing that Sophie most certainly will. Sophie, we're very pleased to have you come and share your phonographic memories with us. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for asking. I've had you in mind for quite a long time. Uh, for the for the listeners, uh, I, I've sort of followed Sophie's work from a distance as a, as a, an interested amateur for quite a while, and then one night I was twittering away and we talking about music. Surprise, surprise! And then um, this clever scientist lady from from the telly popped up and started talking to me about colour box and being a goth and the shaman. And I thought, <laughs> wow, that's amazing! <laughs> I never had a teacher that even knew who they were, so. <laughs> <laughs> I was really pleased with that. And I filed that away in a dark corner of my mind. And now here we are, many years later, and I've got a podcast where we try and talk to people who love music but aren't necessarily musicians or in the business themselves. They just have a real fan's love for music. And I'm pretty sure that's you. Is it not, Soph? It is. I am um, I'm fairly obsessed with music. I, I do try and make a lot. Of, I try and make time in my day when I will get a chance to listen to music. That's what we like to hear, isn't it, Anne? Yes, absolutely. I was going to say, how do you balance the interest in neuroscience with the interest in music? Like where, where, where did the two paths sort of go off in different directions when you were, well, when you were young? I, when I was a student, I went to the Polytechnic of Central London and I wanted to study the psychology of music. That's mm. what I wanted to do. And I had, um, I would, that's what I did my dissertation on. And that's what I thought I'd applied to do a PhD on and then I went to do my PhD and my supervisor wanted me to study speech so I started studying speech <laughs> and somehow I've never got back <laughs> how does that happen how did that go on but one thing that I would say is the thing that has probably made a difference for me at the end you know not the end of my career but now some 30 years into being in academia is that I went from studying speech to realising I was working with voices because when there's someone talking, there's always a voice as well as the language and voices are musical instruments. Our voices are musical instruments. So I ended up back at music after a very long detour around brains and voices. And that's, but actually I think that probably, I found that quite satisfying. It was kind of like stumbling back onto music academically. Mm. So it's, it's not been wasted. My early interest is not wasted. Can you talk to us specifically about that, about what it is, where your expertise lie in terms of the voice and how it's connected to music and what happens to your brain when you sing or when you hear someone singing? Well, I think because... When we talk, we use language and psychologists have primarily studied that. That's what we've been mostly interested in. And that extends to neuroscience as well. That's what we look at someone speaking and we follow the trail that the language takes us on. And we treat that as the front end of the language system. And the same, you know, when someone's speaking, when we decode it, that's that's the kind of the getting into and out of language. And one of the things that has always been there when you look at the brain of someone listening to speech is all the brain areas that we know care about language get activated. But there's all these other brain areas on the right side of the brain, the language is mostly on the left, that are always, always there. And we, it took me years to work out that's because there's other information when someone's mm. talking. So you've got identity and emotion mm. and age and sex and all the other stuff that's in your voice. So that's being processed somewhere in the right side of the brain, likes that kind of emotional information and identity information but also when we speak we never speak and i'm on o tone with just one Mm. pattern of rhythm so there's always this pattern of rhythm and music and and that's an absolute linguistic universal wherever you go and people are talking they modulate the pitch Mm. and the melody of their voice all the time and it's a huge part of communication, actually, how you do that. And of course, it turns out that's a massive part of what the right side of the brain likes as well. It really loves that music. And because it doesn't repeat and it doesn't have structure, we don't hear it as music. And even that I hadn't quite realised until 
in fact, he was working with a beatboxer, Harry Yef, Reap Swan, who is this kind of inspirational, amazingly creative musician, all of this exploring the voice. And it, I sort of suddenly thought, no, it's, that's not different to speech. It's like speech is the restricted thing and beatboxing is probably something getting closer to what the voice is at all. You know, that the, the voice is this bigger thing than speech. It is this beautiful, amazingly complex, like unimaginably flexible instrument. Mm. And that's probably why we have it. That's probably why it exists at all. And because we can use it for speaking, then that's what we've gone on and stood really focused in on. But it is, it's this much bigger thing, and the bigger thing is a musical thing. Mm. I did read somewhere, uh, uh, someone pontificating on the fact that, uh, you know, um, sort of early musical speech really was the foundation of 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 the whole way that we then developed as as a as a species you know what i mean mm. the, the, the way we could actually transmit ideas and get complicated like telesc- telescoped ideas over to other people and actually that enabled us to work together in a certain way and you know absolutely and it's um there I mean, there's huge and endless conversations about why we evolved any of this. But one of the things that is very noticeable is that it really, really matters to us from very, very young. In fact, we learn when we're still in the womb about melody and rhythm in language, such that babies Mm. are born knowing about the melody and the rhythm of the language that they've heard their mother speak in this very kind of filtered way, as well as also knowing who she is. But interestingly, that's also one of the, f- the, the first things that will comfort you, because if you've ever been around a newborn human, they don't, they're not always in the best mood. You know, they, they are, we're born too soon. It's a, it's a complicated state. <laughs> What's going on, exactly? But they are comforted by being fed, they are comforted by being held, and they are comforted by being sung to. Mm. And I think that's because it's a link back to what life was like before you were born. It's one of the few things that actually give you some continuity. And... A tremendous sense of comfort. I think we never really lose that. I think it's one of the reasons why we, when we love music, we really love music, is because it's, it's been something that's been part of our life from before we were born. And that's not true of lots of things. Mm. It's been it's just in there, in at the start, and it's a comfort and it's a joy and it's a shared thing from the start. Here's a really crazy example, and I'll shut up about it, but all mothers, <laughs> all mothers sing to newborn infants. It's, an abs- again, another absolute universal behaviour. And there's a very particular style, that kind of crooning lullaby style of singing. You find it all around the world. And even deaf women who have not necessarily ever heard their own voice, if they have a hearing baby, they will sing to that baby. Wow. wow. That's, that's the power of it. It's quite yeah. extraordinary. So I think that's... So when you sit music as part of that kind of developmental trajectory, you can start to see why it has a sort of this tremendous claim on our emotions and our experience and lots of other stuff we can like. We can love the visual arts. We can love all sorts of other things. Mm. But the music gets in there first. One of our favourite ever guests was Jo Wallace. So good we asked her back for the Christmas special. And we talked to her first off about running her record label Ramrock and how you can casually take a phone call from a disco legend like Tom Moulton, the inventor of the 12-inch disco mix. Again, I am the fat controller, um, so nothing gets onto the labels without me. I am Mm. the A&R department, so that's the bottom line, and I own the labels, so if I don't like it, you're stuffed. Um, (laughs) uh, So it all kind of started round about 2014, and um, Adrian Sherwood lives up the road from us, and he had a fabulous Ghetto Priest album and said, look, I haven't got, you know, the space or the time to release this. Would you like this um, to kind of put out? And I'd previously put out one release, um, the Ramrock All-Stars, to accompany the Gentleman Rude Boy exhibition that um, Dean Chortley put on at Somerset House and um, that's where we debuted it with Ox on the mic. So I said, yeah, 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 it's looking a bit thin on the ground, so I'll, I'll have that. And so Richard Epps did the artwork, and we released it, and, you know, it's it's kind of become a bit of a UK classic. Rodigan um, put it on as an exclusive, and it was played, you know, on all the best reggae stations, so that was great. And then Greg Blackman came along, and I heard his... Um, collaboration with Mr Bird um, over and over and so I licensed that from BBE and um, I 
have a friend called John Oliver, who I worked with when I was on Invicta Radio. He was one of the sound engineers, and he's got um, DWR Radio. And he said, do you mind if I have this? You know, I said, no, 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 take it as a promo. And ooh, about two days later, my landline rang, and only three people have got the number. So I went, oh, hello, <laughs> thinking it was my mum or somebody, and it was Tom Moulton. <laughs> And, um, oh, wow. and he, said, he went, hi, it's Tom. And I went, yeah, right, yeah, yeah, stop winding me up. What's your number? I'll ring you back. And if it had been like a Ramsgate number, um, I would have sussed them right out. Anyway, it wasn't. It was a New York number, so I rang him back. And he went, Did you hi. actually do that, Joe? <laughs> you were like, I don't believe you. Like your yeah, bank trying to scam you. you or something. Yeah, I thought it was one of my mates really winding me up. So, so I, rang, I rang him back and he went, hi. So I said, um... So you're Tom Walton. Great. Okay. And so why are you phoning me today? He said, oh, I've done a remix of the um, Greg Blackman. And Ash was standing next Ashley Beadle, my husband, was standing next to me. And uh, he said, who's that? Who's that? I went, shut up. It's Tom Walton. <laughs> and he said, um, he said, yeah, I've done a remix. And I said, well, send the files over and I have a listen. So I had a quick listen. And uh, I rang him back and I went, oh, Mr. Morton, it's very nice. You know, this is the guy that invented the 12-inch disco yeah. remix. I'm talking to this Legend. man walks on water, okay? <laughs> and I said, do you think you could extend the middle eight for me and make it a bit longer? And she's going, <laughs> are you out of your mind? Tom Morton is ringing you, offering you a 12-inch remix and you're asking him to extend the middle eight. I went... It's my remix. So, um, yes. So, and in fact, controller. So, um, anyway, he said, yeah, not a problem. So he went away. He redid the whole remix, sent it back to me. And I said, right, um, you know, how much do I owe you? And he said, you don't owe me anything. I enjoyed doing this and good luck with the release. And those 300 copies sold out in five minutes. Never, ever. <laughs> I've got my copy. You may hold it and sniff the label. <laughs> Thank you. That's, that's enough for me. I love that. That's Take what you can get at this stage. We spoke to the hilarious and wonderful Andy Dawson uh, all about his love of New Order, working in record shops and how music kind of takes on a magical life of its own when you hear it at the fun fair. I chose it because it was the... F- the first time it really registered with me, it had been around for a, a couple of months, I think, and it slowly crawled up the top 40, and I was aware of it. But then I was at the, the Durham County Fair, which will have been early summer 1983, which was one of these things, you know, where they have, like, vegetable shows and prizes for who's got the biggest leek and that sort of thing. <laughs> and they, they have, like, uh, displays of horses, or they'll have, like, a, a police dog team display, you know, where the police dogs run round through zigzags, cones and they jump through fiery hoops and that's all a this good sort use of, thing. of resources <laughs> it is I, I mean you know, if someone said to me right now Andy there's a police dog display team on down the road <laughs> I'd be down there with a camping chair and a, a flask full of tea straight away because to me maybe it's the pandemic talking but to me that seems like something that would really really be happy to sit and watch but it was one of those it was one of those annual summer county fair things and there was uh, a mini fairground as well and I just remember being on the Ferris wheel and Blue Monday came on. Because obviously, you know, when you're at the fairground, they play the, the, the pop hits of the day mm. sort of thing. And it just absolutely blew me away hearing it through a, a huge PA of a fairground. And I maintain to this day, there's no better place to hear pop music than a fairground. Mm. I have this, I've often got, I think we've had this conversation about we 10 probably years ago. Have, yeah. Twitter, but yeah. <laughs> I, I always say like, like um, fairgrounds are really important because... Um, you would hear music on the TV and and your TV was would have a, you know, in the 70s and 80s, it would be a crap little thing with a tiny... Yeah. And maybe you'd listen to it on the radio and if you were really into it, you might listen to it on headphones. But, the you know, outside of the school disco, where, to be honest, most school discos, it's fairly tepid, isn't it? The yeah. one place, the first place, before you can bump into a proper club or a proper gig, yeah. the fair is the first place you hear proper amplified yeah. music. Absolutely.
And as I said, I'd been aware of it, but, but it hadn't kind of like knocked me senseless, which kind of it did this day. Mm. Uh, so went out and bought it the week after. Um, and yeah, but the um, the summer fair and county show was it was a big thing when I was growing up because we used to get uh, celebrities that would come along and open them. Noel Edmonds arrived in his helicopter one year and landed Ooh. in the middle of the field. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. <gasps> yeah, sharp and take a breath, Noel Edmonds. <laughs> and then the next year we had Keith Chegwin because they obviously couldn't afford to get Noel to come back again. And Noel <laughs> must have told Cheggers. <laughs> yeah, Noel must have maybe recommended Cheggers and just said, yeah, it's a sweet gig, this. you just got to turn up and you'll, you'll, get, you'll get 400 quid, they'll pay your train fare. It's great, it's great fun. Get yourself along. I pictured Noel and Edmonds then, uh, and Keith Chegwin being on the same level celebrity-wise. In my mind at that time, they were like Noel just as exciting as each other. Yeah. Well, they were, but Keith was always Noel's kind of sidekick on Swap mm. Shop. Cheggers mm. was always on the road yeah. doing an outside broadcast thing. So mm. Noel was very much the father figure and Keith was the <laughs> the uh, the child, if you like. <laughs> but I don't know. I don't know what I've got into this for. I don't know why I went down this this road. I was talking about New Order a minute ago. That was me. I derailed we're, we're, we're you. Back at the fair. We're back at the fair. The helicopter's landed. You're on the Ferris wheel. Going up. And you hear. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it, it, I think, that, and, and that summer as well, '83. There was, a, there was, it wasn't just that kind of in terms of electronic music like that. There was uh, Tour, de, "Tour de France" by Kraftwerk was out that mm-hmm. summer as well, mm-hmm. which again is similarly, um, it's just what that fantastic clean sound and the, and the, the, the beats and everything. Um, I'm not a music journalist. I'm struggling to describe it here. But um, Rocket by Herbie Hancock was another one as well, which kind of had that kind of hip hop influence Mm -hmm. coming into it as well. Um, So that that was just, that felt like a game changer, I think, for for me. Do you remember when um, New Order played Top of the Pops and did Blue Monday Live? Yeah, awful, wasn't it? Did, did you watch that? Because I, I had the 12 yeah. at the time and I was telling all my mates at school, this tune is the boss tune, this is the yeah. one. I, and then they're on top of the pop. So me and my brother are like, turn up, turn up. And he's like, just uh, for those who haven't yeah. seen it's, it's it's an electronic song where the band are basically yeah. pretending to play stuff. And uh, Barney, foolishly or perhaps with great bravado, decides to do the vocal completely live. Yeah, they've always done that on Top of the Pops. They've always done Top of the Pops live. And it was they said it was to kind of maintain their punk credentials or something like that. But they've all right. there's a long history of, of really dodgy Top of the Pops performances by New Order. I mean, th- that was when I first got into them. And I think they've probably been my favourite group right through since then. Um, I must have seen them about almost a dozen times, I think, live. But they've always done Top of the Pops live. And I think every time the single's gone down the charts the week after, <laughs> because it's it was, never it was acted a real, as a. It, it was a real disappointment, though. I can remember just bit like yeah. you know, being so into it, and then and then just like I don't know, the vocals sounded a little echoey, and they were very flat, and it was a little out of tune. Yeah. I think the other thing is I'd done that thing which I always do, which I'd hoisted my colours to the to the to the mast, <laughs> and I told everyone how brilliant it was. And the next day, everyone's yeah. going, "Shut up!" <laughs> what? Were they? Were they? I've never seen them live. Are they? Are they like that generally, or is it just like some oh, kind of alchemy great. on top of the pops? I've, I've, I've seen them like nearly a dozen times. They've, yeah. It's it's kind of hit and miss sometimes. Mm. They've got more professional over the last few years and they're, they're reliably great now when you go and see them. But, but, you know, back 20 years or so ago, you never really knew what you were going to get. Yeah. And, of course, when it's all, they've got to bring in all their <clears throat> computers and synths and everything like that and try and set it up in the Top of the Pop studio, it doesn't make for a, 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 a you know, a good viewing experience so that they've got this history of doing it and it's never really worked out for them but i love how you've committed to them so much you've gone to see them a dozen times fully acknowledging that it's hit and miss like you head into you (laughs) get your ticket and you're like this could be shit but i love this band you're like that's uh, that's proper old school commitment it is but i think when it when it's good it's it's almost transcendent Okay. In its greatness. So, I mean, it's kind of like The Fall as well. I went to see The Fall about six or seven times and there was a couple of times when I would leave the gig and say, never again, (laughs) because he'd he'd come on and he'd do 30 minutes and then wander off and then come back on or they'd just be like just awful. But you keep going back, do you know what I mean? (laughs) Because you keep reaching for that that, that moment of greatness Yeah. every time. Yeah. The good thing about Blue Monday was that uh, even though 
certainly the, the vocals can go a bit all over the place for sure the, because of the electronic nature and the and the fullness of the the synthesizers and stuff the, the, the overall sound is always impressive it's always it's always big do you know what i mean it really does yeah, yeah I, I remember seeing them at, um reading festival once with a massive light show uh, mm. tail end of the 80s and it, it was just a, mm. a fabulous show but but there were some loose moments <laughs> towards the end. Yeah, of the party, yeah. Came stumbling up and just went, I think this is the first festival I've been to <laughs> where the band are more out of their head than the audience. <laughs> <laughs> kind of rolled off the stage. <laughs> I bet it wasn't Barney. Because <laughs> I think that was part of the problem. I think that was part uh, of the problem with their erratic uh, live nature uh, was that they were either too refreshed or not before <laughs> they went on. That makes but, sense. I mean, Blue Monday... I think it's one of those songs where you can almost become too familiar with it. And if you take a bit of a break from it and then go back in clean ears, it's mm. just incredible. Mm. The, the fact mm. that they, and it was the thing as well, which they've admitted themselves, they were using technology they didn't know how to use. And that always brings out the best in uh, musicians. I think when, if you don't know the rules, mm. then you're automatically breaking them. So you're coming up with stuff that you, you know, you don't really know what you're doing. It's all kind of experimental. I think that's what happened to Blue Monday. They'd got some new sequences or something and they were just yeah. testing it out. Uh, and it, it led to that, that, that you know, that beat mm, at the start of the so track. True. It's kind of like a naive and, kind of sound. Yeah. I mean, to me, it sounds almost like it was beamed down from outer space. There's two <laughs> tracks that are like that for me and still I can't believe that they're as old as they are. There's that and there's Donna Summer, I Feel Love. Oh, yeah. Which to me just sounds like it could be still from the future, even though it was 1977 or whenever when it mm. came out. Mm. It's just Absolutely. weird. <laughs> it's very brave of them as well at the time because it, it was the, the drum, I can't remember the drummer's name now. Stephen Morris, that's his name. Yeah. So Stephen Morris, I thought was particularly brave in the order because um, there he was, the drummer in the band, at a time when there was still a great deal of. Um, kind of cynicism about synthesizers in general you know people mm. the musicians union was still calling for them to be banned from from yeah. on the bbc and stuff um and there's there's the drummer mr morris and he's out there listening to arthur baker in new york and he goes i know what i'll do i'll make myself completely <laughs> redundant by yeah. <laughs> sticking a drum machine on this track <laughs> well we were very delighted to welcome craig charles onto the show in series one and uh, god he made us laugh like absolute drains and one of my favorite bits was when he was enthusing about funkadelic and bootsy collins amazing living bass I was talking to Bootsy, I had Bootsy on my show, and, um, and he was telling me that uh, he took so much, so much acid when he made Maggot Brain <laughs> that uh, he was in the stu studio playing his bass guitar, and his bass guitar turned into a boa constrictor. <laughs> and it's like, what? And he's going, yeah. He said, everything just started melting, Craig. And it was like, the next minute, baby, the next minute, baby, I was playing a snake. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I was hitting it on the wand, though. I was hitting it on the wand. There's <laughs> some great stories come out of that one. Because um, uh, Eddie Hazel, when he did uh, the actual track Maggot Brain, he apparently just went, play it like your mama died. <laughs> like your mama died. <laughs> and they recorded the whole thing with a drum track. There was a drum track underneath it. Mm -hmm. And then, and, and then, this is this is some powerful acid. So what do you do when you've finished your, your rock opus maggot brain track at last? Well, George just takes the drums out. Yeah. <laughs> it, it all takes, and then that's, that would be madness in any other record, really. I but know. I mean... It, it's behind is so mm. perfect. Yeah, I mean, people see a lot... I know a lot of my friends find that, that, that guitar solo a bit inaccessible, really, because it does go on for forever and when you think it's going to stop it hasn't really started yet and um but it's just i think I, I, you've got to be in the mood for it but that maggot brain when you're in the mood for it is just it's just a proper proper out there experience do you know what i mean mm. you know was that how did you i know you said you you kind of came to it you're listening to a lot of of more rocky stuff at the time but was that something you're listening to with like your dad's approval or did you get turned on to it by radio or friends how did you come upon funkadelic funkadelic in a, in a nightclub in liverpool i must have been about 14 um and I, I'd taken my school blazer off, turned it inside out, and took me, and um, and did the same with the tie. And, um, that must have looked sharp. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean. And pretended I was 18. 
And uh, I got in, I think I nursed a rum and black all night. Yeah. And that's like rum with, you know, the black currant syrup. Oh, oh God, yeah. it was so sickly sweet. But that's all I could afford, one rum and black, which I wasn't really drinking, just wetting my lips, you know, just wet my lips and thing. And, um, and, uh, and that came on the dance floor and the, the place just erupted. And it was like, wow, this is a next level shit. This is a, this is a, my world has completely changed. They're really influential, I think, in, in a lot of, uh, not just black music, but white music as well. Um, I think uh, Funkadelic's legacy. I mean, if you go back to, the, to their old days when they were a doo-wop band, the Parliaments, uh, the journey they must have been on or the trip, the trip, shall I say? Yeah, the trip they must have been on to get to uh, P Funk once to get funked up is must have been, must have been. Oh, I wish I was on that journey with them. <laughs> I don't know. Not many people would have survived it. I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was talking to, uh, oh God, what's his name? Sean Ryder. I was talking to Sean Ryder the other day, and I said to him, "How's Bez?" And he went, "Oh, you know, still the same. He went out when he was 21, hasn't come home." <laughs> Not a bad way to live, to be fair. Although Bez must be at a loose end at the moment. Yeah, I think, I think, I think everyone's at a loose end. God, ain't that the truth? One of our favourite people, not to mention our favourite guests, has been B.B. Lynch, brilliant journalist, hilarious person, uh, who found her way to writing in quite an unconventional way. She tells us that story here. My second is um, Scritty Politi and Word Girl. And um, the reason I chose this song is I wanted to be um, a singer. <laughs> I mean, I have got quite an impressive, uh, impressive vibrato, but that's, that's another story. No, I really wanted to be a singer. What about when the I singing? Left, yeah, exactly. <laughs> when I left school, I wanted, to be, um, I wanted to be in the West End and I wanted to sing and act. And I really had no discernible talent. <laughs> but <laughs> I, um, I joined a cabaret group when I was about... 18 I think and it was called Chris Gibson and the Exhibitionists I was an Exhibitionist and we um, thanks for clarifying (laughs) 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 and it was oh man I we had such a laugh we I didn't go to university I did this instead (laughs) it was brilliant (laughs) and um, we it was um all the boys in the cabaret were gay all the girls were straight I don't know what that mix was about and um so we would play all the gay venues and we so we did the whole gay circuit and we had an absolute i won't say ball we had an absolute blast <laughs> and um and our our shtick was that we were we were kind of dressed up in kind of 1940s um you know the boys were in you know tux outfits and the girls no. were in like little dinners uh, you know classy like, show then oh my god yeah it's this classy my gimmick was singing into a dildo called Derek. <laughs> <laughs> was did you announce that did you introduce the dildo before you sang or was that just your name for it do you know i i really hope i announced him <laughs> i really <laughs> hope he had his own theme music I, I, but um i think i, I saw love... Derek those at glastonbury once <laughs> <laughs> We, and we had such a funny time and our, yeah our thing was so at that time the whole gay scene it was mainly um for entertainment it was mainly drag artists miming mm-hmm. 
And um, so we were singing live. I mean, not necessarily well, me, but um, the rest of them were. But we would, so we would sing pop songs and classics and standards and we would bastardise the lyrics. And so um, the, the, Derek, the dildo one was just what I always wanted. And I said he was giving me a dildo to use. And mm. um, I interviewed Mary Wilson. And now I'm glad to say she's a friend of mine. But it took a couple of <laughs> meetings before I dare say to her, oh, Mary, I used to sing your song into a dildo called Derek. <laughs> <laughs> how to win friends and influence people very good yeah, so how old were you when you were when you were singing into a dildo then 18 thank you you've got a daughter how old yeah 18 and we would i mean we would oh we played i think we played the hippodrome Oh wow! Big we hit. played, we played like all, all you know, uh, RVT. We were backstage. We we supported Liddy Savage at the RVT. Wow! Yeah. For those who only know the UK, for anyone who only knows Lily Savage from the Dog Show and 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 oh. back in the day, she was the funniest, rudest, rudest, rudest thing I'd ever seen in my life. And oh my god, I saw her once and I nearly died laughing. Absolute <laughs> genius. Well, I. We, I mean, so yeah, I would, and I would um, often fill up Derek (laughs) (laughs) so that you could kind of squirt him at the end of a especially impressive chorus. Oh, come on, Eamon, get with it. So I would, um, and I remember being in the tiny um, dressing room at the back of uh, the Royal Vauxhall Tavern, the RVT in in, um, Vauxhall, um, kind of pumping Derek's bulb, if I will. In, a, yeah. in a, a, t- a sink full of water just to kind of fill him up. Lily Savage standing next to me. <laughs> <laughs> but then years later, yeah. when I became um, a writer, I, which was the magazine? I think it was Ludus. Ludus was the first sex magazine for women. Um, and I, unsurprisingly, <laughs> was a columnist. And I, um, and they sent me to Edinburgh, Edinburgh Festival, to interview Lily. And they flew me up there. I mean, it's back in the day. Can you imagine that now? Yeah. Flew me up there, and um, it was oh, it was just such a thrill because I just thought she was, I mean, genius level. And I interviewed Paul O'Grady, Lily, in um, uh, a kind of B and B in Edinburgh, and. And we didn't do it. So, you know, Barry Humphreys always will only interview as Edna in full yeah. drag and everything. Um, that wasn't, that didn't happen. So Paul was just like, you know, in his civvies. But we were in this like B&B and we, it, but he's got Lily's voice, you know. <laughs> and, like, and I was asking for love advice from Lily. I mean, it was just, just funny. And then they put it in the magazine and it was um, a double page spread. And it's um, a kind of vertical, a landscape photo of Lily Savage in drag. And, um, and the headline was more than a woman. Oh, <laughs> lovely, lovely. So, oh, my God. Anyway. More so, than a woman. Back to the word girl. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. About that. Yeah. So I did the exhibitionist and blah, blah, blah. And then after that, um, I still wanted to be a singer. And I was working at Strong Room. Do I think have, have oh. you been involved at Strong Room? That's Eamon second Eamon, of course you play that's, there at the yeah, bar. That's, I, I, until this, this dreadful COVID thing happened, I had a regular night there every month. Of course. Of course. Yeah, I knew that. Perfect. Well, Strong Room. Oh, I mean, people dream about their family homes. I dream about Strong Room. Mm. So I started working there when I was 19 or 20, and I was their first receptionist So, like when they opened. And I just just love, loved it and love it to this day, and I feel really part of the family there. And when anyone – if I go there to the bar or to the, the building, and um, I don't know, I just have a real ownership over the place. I hate anyone else working there. Anyway, <laughs> that's my thing. Um, so I worked at Strong Room and while I was doing so I was really involved in the music scene and, and then I um, but I still wanted to sing and I joined an a cappella group. Uh, well, actually, my singing teacher was Ian Shaw. Amazing oh jazz singer. Oh, my God, Shaw. Ian Shaw. Yeah, he does a show on jazz. Oh, yes, he does. So Ian was my singing teacher. Amazing. Yeah, and then Ian introduced me to Vococo and Vococo were an a cappella band and we would play... Um, Again, standards like Sam Cooke, You Send Me, um, what other stuff did we do? Loads, loads of um, original stuff as well. I mean, just before I joined Vococo, um, Imelda Staunton was in it, Brian Kennedy. I mean, like absolute wow. talent. And then Lynchy somehow manages to break <laughs> away in. You are um, hiding your light under a bushel here. Yeah. I, don't, I don't believe you when you... Uh... I can hold a tune, but I've got no no real talent. But I loved it, and I loved the rehearsals, and I love a cappella, and I love just that 
merge of the voices is so exciting as a singer to kind of pick up and it. I just, I just, I made lifelong friends through it, and it was just a joy. Anyway, Word Girl, because we, um, that was my song. That was the song that I sang lead on. And again, I love the rehearsals, but I get so nervous for performance. I just wasn't a natural singer performance-wise. It was too much for me. We played Ronnie Scott's. Oh. But we had a gig at oh, really? Ronnie's. So I'm on stage at Ronnie's. I've told everyone I know to come along because it's Ronnie Scott's. We start doing Word Guard. Jesus Christ. I mean, I got through it, but it was ugly. I mean, mm. I was so nervous and my throat, and it just was so tight. And so the reason I've chosen this is this was the song that made me realise I should be a writer. Oh. Wow. <laughs> so I, I see not a songwriter just a writer, <laughs> no, just a writer. <laughs> i just gave up oh my god how much do we love bb we love you bb we love maximum, you we lo- maximum love maximum love and i'll tell you what we loved her so much that we actually asked her back to host us as we told our phonographic memories and bb was just a delight and uh, made everything 10 times more pleasurable in fact it's really it's really her show as she pointed out at the time but here's Bibi interviewing me or asking me about my um, phonographic memory of how I discovered that I was not a scratch master in front of about 8,000 ravers. What's the track that you've chosen? Ladies and gentlemen, the track I have chosen is an old rave classic, a, a house bomb, one of those ones that made the whole place jump up and get lively. It's 40 Miles by Congress, a big piano anthem. So I'd never heard of it. Me neither. Yes. Neither of you as cool as me, that's why. <laughs> what is it about the track? Why do you... When was it? 1991? Well, it was released in 91, but the memory actually came about maybe a couple years later. So let me set the scene. Yeah. First of all, we'll start with your hair. <laughs> I, my hair... Oh, well, honestly, we should start with my hair because uh, rave days, right? We'd all let ourselves go. <laughs> um, I, I hadn't had a haircut in at least three years I'm probably longer than that, probably. Um, so I had like a ponytail, a big ginger ponytail. I, I, I went kind of dark around the age of 30. I don't know why, but I used to have bright ginger hair. It's really strange. But it was down to my ass, pretty much. Uh, and it, <laughs> I kid you not, I looked like um, kind of maybe Bon Jovi with a filter that made his hair go ginger. <laughs> <laughs> so it was curly as well. It was like frizzy like as well. Long and curly and uh, uh, bouncy. I was like a silky and advert, but like in a tracksuit. <laughs> this is so great. Please say that you used a scrunchie to tie it back. <laughs> I, yeah, I did. <laughs> but you know, I, I, more than more often than not, I used a rubber band because I was a bloke. <laughs> yeah, you didn't care about split ends. <laughs> no, so you've well, got your beautiful mane. I, I, it was a honestly, I was like a lion in raver form, <laughs> um, and, and uh, I was wearing um, loose tracksuit bottoms, big. <laughs> funky adidas shoes um a global hypercolor t-shirt and i used to have my door key like a, which is like a not not like a yale one but like a, a back door key um i used to wear that around my neck on a shoelace because i'm really <laughs> Did no one say anything to you? No, we were absolutely pie-eyed for about four or five years. We didn't know what day of the week it was. Um, and then this is the thing. So it was like about 90, 90, end of 92, maybe start of 93. It was like Christmas winter time. I think it might have been, it might have been in the no man's land between Christmas yeah. and New Year's. I'm not sure. But by this time, well, we were completely living in the upside down. You know, we used to sleep all day and stay up all night and uh, and just get up to no good and talk shit and, you know, philosophize and all that sort of thing and go raving a lot. And we've been doing this now for about three years. So the wheels were loosening. <laughs> <laughs> so another couple of years before they came off completely, but we were definitely, we were definitely on a runaway cart. And, how uh, old were you? Tell me how old you were. So I would have been 22. Two and gorgeously slim. Oh, beautiful. Oh, man. Beautiful. I, uh, because I, I was on the dole, so I couldn't afford food. <laughs> Not if I was going to go raving. <laughs> so, so I looked like a, like a, actually, I looked like a match that had just been struck. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a gorgeous, festive image. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Anyway, <laughs> we're completely in the upside down. Um, we've, we've lost, we're out of society. We're just, we're just ravers now. That's all we do. We just, we just listen to techno and dance in fields. And we've been doing it for years and it was beginning to take its toll. 
And uh, we decided as we kind of we're grinding, grinding the gears and and and, and really hitting the hitting the, the stoppers. We decided we'd we'll have a week off, mate. Let's let everyone just chill out, will we? Just chill out. Put on KLF. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> so we sat around. It's about three in the morning, which translates to about oh, I don't know, two in the afternoon for normal people. <laughs> yeah. And um the landline rings. Because no one had a mobile phone. So now, first of all, this is a shared house with six people in it. Who rings a shared house at three o'clock in the morning? <laughs> the police. Uh, well, uh, listen, it could have been actually, um, but um, I think our reputation preceded us. Uh, so we got we got this phone call, and it was real script. It's like one of those early mobile phones. So first of all, you could hear the man struggling to lift it to his ear, <laughs> <laughs> and it was like. Come in, base. Come in, base. And it was this guy who we kind of vaguely knew. I wouldn't say we were great mates, but we vaguely knew them from raving. Well, basically, what I mean is, we bumped into each other. We'd done safe. We say, "What's your name? Where you come from? What you done?" Nice. And then he's ringing my house at three o'clock in the morning. Mm. So he says, "Lads, uh, I've got about five thousand people in a barn here. <laughs> <laughs> we've got we got we got an eighteen k sound system." We got lights. We got we got like um, big backdrops and camos everywhere. It's, it's a brilliant barn. It's absolutely great. We've got no decks. Mm-hmm. It's like what? Uh... Now, no one could afford decks because they're very expensive, and we were all dollies. Being a clever little manipulative sort, is I went to the local art centre and I gave them a load of spiel about community arts groups and nice. <laughs> I talked them into buying a set of Technics twelve tens. Which was genius, do you know what I mean? Because then, A, we started throwing little raves at the community arts centre, which was good fun. And then, uh, unbeknownst to the to the mill, bless them, uh, in Banbury, um, I started to take the decks home of a weekend to practice. <sighs> they, would be, they would be booked out, you see. So, like, um, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, they'd all be booked out. Saturday, the mill was kind of doing its events. No, no one would be in to, to run the work. <laughs> So I'd take the decks home just to get a little bit practicing. So this guy's phoning us up three o'clock in the morning and he says, we need some decks. And we're kind of like, oh, we've actually got some decks here. I mean, they're not technically ours, but. <laughs> <laughs> so, we, I'm, I mean, I'm a bit nervous. I'm a nervous Nelly about anything that kind of gets me possibly into trouble. So I'm a bit, mm. but my man Jimmy looked at me and he goes, Eamon, there's 5,000 people in a barn yeah. in Upper Hay. Need a party. <laughs> We could be heroes. I was like, whoa, yeah, let's do this thing. So did a bit of ringing around, got my mate uh, to drive us over there. I mean, you know, it's like it's nearly four in the morning when we arrive. Can you imagine four or five thousand people waiting till four in the morning for the party to start? This we is... like, I know, I know. <laughs> Think about it. So we get in there. And uh, first of all, it was one of the most glorious things of my entire life. So we've each got a deck and one, one the other driver's got a mixer. And we're, there's two bouncer guys who are, who are the friends that phoned us up who had kind of organised the party. And they're walking alongside us and they're parting people. They've been playing like a cassette over the sound. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, how are they entertained? They were playing spoons, tissue and comb, the Lambeth walk. They were all joining in. <laughs> They had a copy of Atmosphere by Russ Abbott and they were putting it on a loop. <laughs> but as we walked in, like we, uh, they were shooing people out of the way. He goes, make way, make way for the decks, make way for the decks. Oh and then this God. MC spots us and he goes, ladies and gentlemen, the saviors are here. We got them Technics. We got them Technics decks. We got them. Oh, man, it was just, it was glorious. I, I felt like a king arriving home from a victorious war campaign. And we... Put the decks up on the thing, and everyone's like, "Yeah, go on, woo!" are cheering us and all that sort of stuff. And someone's plugging them in. They start chatting to the DJ, and he's going, "Oh, fuck, ooh, it's, a, it's a big moment. Everyone's really, really on the vinegar for this moment." So he's like, "What should I play? What should I play?" We start looking through his bag, and um, life moved very fast in those days. So um, this is like, like I say, it's probably just on the cusp of '93, and. Congress 40 Miles had come out in 91, but that's two years ago. And in rave terms, that's like 5,000 years. But I said, look, that is an old classic. That's a, and it's a big piano number. Everyone's going to go, 
absolutely bonkers if you play that. So he's like, yeah, yeah, let's do that. Yeah. I'm like, nice one, man, nice one. And then in a moment of fucking idiocy, <laughs> I was so excited and I just felt like nothing could go wrong. So I said, let me scratch it off like I could scratch. <laughs> you can see where this is going, can't you? So put the record on the deck. It's 5,000 people there. The sound system is humming away, ready to go. And I go, and ping the needle off the record. Of course, it's on an 18K system, so you can just hear every bang. And everyone's like covering their heads. And this very large man, leaned over the decks and not in the spirit of free raving at all said you're a fucking twat mate <laughs> <laughs> i honestly thought he was going to eat me alive right there <laughs> Actually, whilst he was threatening me the dj started the tune uh and you know he did a quick rewind and 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 ding 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 ding, ding and everyone went completely ballistic and it was glorious and marvelous and wonderful and that man didn't kill me enjoyed this very special edition of what goes around podcast thank you so much for indulging us in our little trip down memory lane it's been wonderful making these podcasts and we're going to make many many more hopefully with many more interesting people on so if you enjoyed it and if you have a space in your heart for us please like us subscribe to the podcast oh right as a review on apple Podcasts. that would be so darn useful but most of all, just tell a friend about it. Spread the word. Let's get more people listening to what goes around. Because, hey, it's not that bad, is it? It's quite good, really. <laughs>